Mary. I'm one of the members here, and I'm going to be reading today's passage for us. If you will turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. We'll be reading through chapter 6, verse 9. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also, to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he, shall not, should, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to, to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is God's word for us today. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no satisfaction. Most of you have probably heard this song. I can't assume everyone does because when I... Uh, I quoted Imagine a couple weeks ago. Claire said, I've never heard of that song, you know, so I'm like, okay. But, but if you repeat that, those words about six more times, you come across one of the greatest songs of all time called, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, right? Uh, it was released by the Stones in 1965. It had a great guitar riff that was unique for the time. It had a really cool sound, and so it, it rose to the charts very quickly. But this song is, this has actually stood the test of time. It's considered to be one of the top 50 most iconic songs of all time. Even though it's kind of crude and, and just really basically simple, I think it, it's, 
it speaks to something that's common in our human experience, doesn't it? Because I think many people feel that way. I can't get no satisfaction. I try and I try and I try, but I can't seem to get satisfaction. That's what Ecclesiastes is going to talk about today. That's going to be the central theme of our passage this morning. You'll see that word satisfaction repeated three or four times. And so I want to ask this morning as we begin, does this express your experience? Are you satisfied with life? Or are you still trying to get satisfaction? What is satisfaction? Well, Merriam-Webster defines it as the fulfillment of one's wishes, expectations, or needs, or the pleasure derived from this. There are several um, synonyms to the word satisfaction. Contentment, pleasure, gratification, fulfillment, enjoyment, happiness. And the two of these words, satisfaction and joy, are central to the message of Ecclesiastes. We've seen that repeated over and over again, especially the word joy, right? It's a, it's a key part of what Ecclesiastes is talking about when it talks about the good life, right? Solomon is asking several times throughout the book, what is good for, for a person to do throughout the years of their life on earth? And he keeps coming, to back, coming back to this. There's nothing better than to be joyful, enjoy life, be satisfied. And so as we will see today in our passage today, a major part of the vanity and futility of life is trying and trying unsuccessfully to get satisfaction. So today, Kohelet, our author, is going to draw a sharp contrast between what does and what does not satisfy. And he will show us how to find satisfaction. So we're jumping into his argument here. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know we're in, in, in the middle of this series of vanities that he's identifying for us in the world, right? There's going to be 10 total. The last two weeks, we've looked at the first eight. Today, we're looking at the final two, and the final two are very closely related. They're really talking about one and the same thing. And so in our passage this morning, there's two vanities at the beginning and at the end, and then there's two what he calls grievous evils that flow from these vanities. And then right in the middle of this section, there is this beautiful portrait of the good life that God gives. This is often how Hebrew poetry works. There's this, there's this focus on the center, right? And so at the, the center is where it, it, the, the author's trying to make his most important point. And so we'll look at that here as we go through. But the first vanity that he, he identifies for us here is the great imposter for finding satisfaction, and that is the love of money. This is vanity number nine. Love of money does not satisfy. Notice verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now, for the first time in the Bible, this concept is introduced, the love of money. This will become a very important theme in the New Testament. Jesus talks about this. Paul talks about this. This is uh, something that identifies people who don't know God. They love money. 
Love is a quality or feeling of strong or constant affection for and dedication to another. Love is a very important word, especially in Deuteronomy 6.5, which is a key verse in the Old Testament. It's a verse that Jesus said identified the greatest commandment. And that is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's where our love, this constant affection and dedication to another, that's where our love is supposed to be directed. Love God with everything you have. But here Solomon says, some people love money. Money is the great imposter. Money can't get you satisfaction. And he goes on here in these verses, verses uh, 11 and 12, to kind of describe two things that money can't buy. The first thing is money can't buy enough stuff. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? The more stuff you have, the more people want your stuff, right? And the more people offer you stuff that you don't have. Right? I think the idea here is that the more you have, the more you spend. I don't know if you've experienced this in your life, but I certainly have. You know, I'm a self-employed person. I own my own business, so my, my income tends to have these extreme extremes, right? Um, some years are really good. Some years are not so good. But it doesn't matter how good the year is. We always seem to spend everything we make. You know, even on the good years, at the end of the year, I'm thinking, man, we've had a really good year this year. I'm sure we're going to have some money left over in savings, and then there isn't any, right? And I'm like, Lisa, what do you do with all the money? <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. It's not her fault. It's, uh, I have the same problem, right? So, so, you know, whenever you have more money, it's like you can get some better clothes. You can get, get a little better shoes. You can get, go to a few more restaurants, right? You can take a, a little nicer vacation, get a little nicer car, then you get a little nicer home, and your standard of living just keeps going up and up and up, and it never ends. Money can't buy enough stuff. Money also can't buy sleep. Interesting here in verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Kind of an interesting verse here. I think it has both a literal and a metaphorical meaning. Interestingly enough, the CDC says that one-third of Americans don't get enough sleep. And the top professions that do get sufficient sleep are farming, fishing, and forestry. <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, things haven't changed much in 3,000 years when this is written. I think that's what Solomon is talking about. Some of these laborers, you know, work in the field, uh, work hunting and fishing. They seem to get plenty of sleep, whether they have a lot of money or not. But the, the full stomach of the rich, and, and this may maybe uh, represent his abundance, right? Sometimes people, when they have an abundance, it doesn't allow them to sleep because it creates more anxiety and more concern. That actually leads us to the first grievous evil. Now, there's going to be two grievous evils, and they both are results of loving money. What happens when you love money? You're devoted to money. Well, it, one of two things can happen. The first one is riches guarded and lost. Riches guarded and lost. Notice this in verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. Now, we read here 
Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. The word kept here has a a pretty wide range of meaning. It means careful to keep, to guard, to watch carefully, to hoard, to protect. You see, this is one of the effects of loving money is it becomes your treasure. It's like you've got to protect it. You've got to keep it. You've got to keep your eyes on it, right? You have to really guard it, right? And it says here that they were kept to his hurt. So these riches were not helping this person. They were actually hurting him. Now, it doesn't say exactly how, but there's a lot of ways we could imagine people keeping their money to their, could hurt them, right? You're so careful with money that it's not an advantage to you, but it's a disadvantage. Or maybe you're afraid or unable to enjoy it. Maybe it causes anxiety and stress. Maybe it causes conflict. Maybe you're controlling with your money or you're not very generous with your money and, and so you're hoarding it and not sharing it. You know, it's not enjoyed, but it's fretted over. There are many, many ways we could look at this, right? We see this in the world around us. It's interesting, in verse 17, Kohelet describes the experience of this person. All his days he eats in darkness in much, much vexation and sickness and anger. Eats in darkness is a very interesting phrase. Usually when we think of eating, we think of, of joy and festivity and, and, and people, right? But eating in darkness is suggesting maybe you're, you're trying to hide, right? You're eating in secret. You're, you're trying to stay away from people. The idea might be is that you think everybody wants your hoard, right? And so you just try to eat alone. This is, this is the picture of riches guarded and then He says, they are lost. They're lost in a bad venture. Some kind of investment that resulted in a total loss. I've been uh, subscribing to something called the Daily Wealth Newsletter for about the last 15 years. Like I said, I'm a small business owner, and so this has just been a way for me to kind of keep abreast of financial issues, the markets, and they, they, they talk about real estate and stocks and just investing and markets and so forth. And what I've noticed over the years is there, there seems to be two primary concerns when it comes to finances, how to make money and how to keep it, keep from losing it, right? And that's actually really hard. It's really hard to make money, and it's really hard not to lose it. I don't know if you know this, but studies show that around 80 to 90% of investors lose money in the stock market, 80 to 90%. This is because most people don't understand how the stock market works. As a result, they make rash decisions, invest in the wrong companies, and sell their stocks at the wrong time. I can totally relate to this, right? I, I don't know how to invest in the stock market. I could freely admit that to you today. Don't come to me for stock advice. You know, I'm not, I don't get it. Um, and most people don't. I like, I like real estate. That's what I like to invest in. But I looked up that this week as well, and Google says that 95% of real estate investors fail. (laughs) So they have an even higher failure rate. Seems like the best place to put your money is to invest in a business. However, data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that approximately 20% of new businesses fail during the first two years, 45% fail after the first five years, 65% 65% fail during the first 10 years, and 25, uh, 75% fail after 15 years. So if you start a business, you have a one in four chance of actually succeeding in the long term. 
This is certainly my personal experience. I uh, started a business in 2004 with a business partner. We, it was a real estate business. We thought that we were doing a really uh, good job. We had good equity in our company. We were trying to be very conservative, very careful. And then 2008 hit and the real estate market crashed and we lost everything. We, we lost all the value in our company. And not only did we lose the value, we were underwater by at least 30%. And I saw lots of people, lots of businesses go bankrupt at that time. People who looked really, really successful, seemed like they were doing really well, were going bankrupt. My business partner and I found ourselves in an attorney's office talking about bankruptcy as well. And uh, we certainly could have filed for bankruptcy. We would qualify. But the attorney told us, he said, look, bankruptcy, it's a tough road. He said, if you, can, if you can make it without going bankrupt, try to do that. And so... That's what we did, and the next 10 years were just grueling, very, very difficult. And so the point here is that it's hard to make money, and it's hard not to lose money, and that's what he's talking about here. Verse 16 expands this grievous evil, I think, to all of us. It gets a little confusing here, but notice verse 16, this also is a grievous evil, just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Now, this seems to be talking about all of our experience in some ways, right? No matter how much money we have and no matter how long we have it, at some point we're going to die and then we're going to lose it, right? And so, so how do we live, right? How should we live our life? Do we want to be keeping it to our hurt? Well, he shows a better way here in verses 18 to 20, and this is really a beautiful section. This is the central section. God begins to be mentioned here, the main character of Ecclesiastes, the hero of Ecclesiastes, and we see here that God can give us something different. God can give us satisfaction. Notice these beautiful verses, verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Isn't that beautiful? Such a stark contrast to verse 17. To find enjoyment, this is satisfaction. Now there's a threefold gift of God in these verses. In verse 19, there's three things that God gives that equal satisfaction. The first is the power to enjoy wealth and possessions. Notice that in verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. Power to enjoy them. A very interesting phrase. The ability to enjoy them. Notice there's two separate things here. Wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy wealth and possessions. Douglas Wilson says it's like a can of peaches and a can opener. If you really like peaches, you really enjoy peaches, and you have a can of peaches... That's not enough to really enjoy those peaches, right? You have to have the can opener. And it doesn't matter if you have a whole warehouse full of cans of peaches. If you don't have a can opener, you can't enjoy them, right? And that's the way wealth and possessions are. You can have 
wealth and possessions more than anyone. But you, you might not have the power to enjoy those possessions. You see, and so the gift that God gives is the can opener, right? He gives us the power to enjoy wealth and possessions. That's the first gift. The second gift is to accept one's lot, to accept one's lot. Now, this is another very interesting concept in the Old Testament. The lot was uh, something that, you remember God delivered the people from Egypt. He brought them into the promised land, and then they had this land, and the land was divided up by lot to all 12 tribes in every family. Every family was to come before the priests, and they were casting the lots. We don't know exactly what they were, but some kind of dice, some way to, dis- to make a decision. The lots were cast, and that determined which, what piece of land you inherited. And that became your family's inheritance forever. That's the literal lot. But then this idea of the lot came to represent what God gives each person, right? God has a lot for each one of us, our inheritance. And so God gives the ability to accept our lot, whatever it is that we've been given. This is, a, this is repeated several times in the Old Testament, the Psalms and Proverbs. Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9 is, is one of the beautiful pictures I like, where Solomon says this, "'Give me neither poverty nor riches.'" Feed me with the food that is my portion. That word, my, those words, my portion, are the exact same words. They mean my lot, literally. So that I will not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? And I will not become impoverished and steal and profane the name of my God. This is a prayer I often pray. God, what's my lot? Help me to be satisfied with what you've given me. Help me to accept it. Help me to be happy with it. Help me not to wish I had somebody else's lot, Right? but just to accept my lot. This is God's gift if we can accept what he's given to us. And that leads to the third part of God's gift is that is to rejoice in one's work. Right? When you can accept your lot and accept your, your place in life, you can just enjoy your work. You can enjoy what you do. This is satisfaction, all three of these things. And notice how, the, how this is experienced at the end of verse 20. Or in verse 20, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What an interesting phrase, right? Wouldn't that be a great way to live life? Just to be occupied with the joy in your heart. You don't think about the past. You don't wish for the good old days. You're just happy for today, right? And this is, this is God's gift. So beautiful. Unfortunately, we have to go to grievous evil number two, though. Right? And this, again, swings us 180 degrees back to what happens when you love money. Grievous evil number two in chapter six, beginning in chapter six, verse one, riches gained but not enjoyed. Notice verse one, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. I think lies heavy on mankind means it's prevalent, it's common, it's something we see often. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. Here's the important insight. Having wealth does not equal enjoying wealth, right? God doesn't give him the can opener. He has everything he could ever want. He just doesn't have the power to enjoy it. 
I think this was Kohelet's experience. If you remember from chapter 2, when we talked about chapter 2, he had everything. He was king, right? He, was, he could do whatever he wanted, and he, he lived that way. Whatever his heart desired, that's what he did. And yet it did not result in satisfaction. It resulted in frustration and vexation. And here, the, the, the ultimate conclusion here is his soul is not satisfied. Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Interesting phrase, he has no burial. Now, who's responsible to bury somebody? Usually it's the kids, right? And he says here, you know, this man might have a hundred children, but he has no burial. Well, what does that mean? It means that his kids really don't care about him. He's unlamented, even though he had a hundred of them. Like possessions, having children does not guarantee enjoying children, right? Or enjoying relationships with them. Solomon says a stillborn is better off than this person. Be better never to have been born. Because the stillborn has rest. Notice verse 5. Moreover, it has not, talking about the stillborn, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. And that idea of rest is the idea of satisfaction, of contentment, of peace. And he's saying, look, it doesn't matter if you gain the whole world. This is what Jesus said. What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Right? And, and that's what Solomon is talking about. Your soul finds no rest. It finds no satisfaction. He's saying, what's the profit? What's the point? It'd be better never to have been born. That leads us to vanity number 10 in verses 7 through 9. Working to feed desire does not satisfy. Notice verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. This reminds me of chapter 1, verse 7. If you remember from chapter 1, it, said, it talked about the streams flowing into the sea, but the sea is never full. Here he says, no, no matter how much food we put in our mouths, our appetite is never satisfied because we will be hungry again, right? So the picture is here, somebody toiling to feed his mouth. The picture, you know, is just kind of, it's strong, Right? We feed our mouth, we feed our mouth, but our mouths are never satisfied. Our appetite is never satisfied. And so the picture here is living to satisfy our desires is futile because our desires are never satisfied. And, and like I said, this is very closely at, uh, tied to the, 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 vanity, the other vanity we talked about, love of money. Why do people love money? It's to feed their desires, right? These are really two sides of the same coin. It's two ways of saying the same thing. Living to feed our desire, working to feed our desire, is, is, is usually results in loving money. Now, this is the wisdom of the world, right? This is what the world pursues. We hear it in almost every Disney movie, right? Follow your heart. Pursue your dreams. Do whatever it takes to fulfill your passion. See, the world starts with this question, what do I want? And then proceeds from there to, to live your life pursuing what you want, what you're passionate about, what you dream about, right? 
And so as Christians, we're called away from this. This is called the love of the world as opposed to the love of God. God offers us something different. 1 John 2, 15-17 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and here it is, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, this is not from the Father. This is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What is the will of God? Well, one thing it is, is the, the better way he points to here in verse 9. Remember, we, we, last week we talked a lot about the better way. He uses this phrase, this is better than that. Well, here he says in verse 9, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. The better way is wanting what you have. Better is what you see than what you want. Instead of asking, what do I want? We should ask, what do I have? What do I see? What's been given to me? Happiness is wanting what you have. This can apply to many areas of life, not just finances, right? Whenever you're dissatisfied with someone or something or some situation, ask yourself, why am I dissatisfied? It's usually because somewhere you're, 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 you're pursuing what you want. You want something that you're not getting, right? And some way to, uh, one way to overcome that is to say, what do I have? What has God given me? And when we do this, it leads to a life of gratitude versus a life of covetousness, envy, and greed. How do we get there? It's easier to say than to do, right? In fact, sometimes it seems impossible not to live for our desires. Well, that leads us to our go to nail for today. We just have one. Don't love money, love God. Now, Ecclesiastes doesn't directly say we should love God here, right? But I think it's clearly implied, right? He's saying those who love money it results in these grievous evils. God gives us satisfaction. Love of money doesn't give us satisfaction. So don't love money, love God. God alone gives the satisfaction and enjoyment of life that wealth and possessions never can. So how do you know if you love money or God? I think as Americans, we almost have to assume that our default position is loving money. Like we all, if we're honest, I think we all struggle with this. Like water to fish, so is love of money to Americans, right? <laughs> It's in the air that we breathe in this wealthy nation. We're very materialistic. How we think about and handle money is a very spiritual issue. And this is one of the areas that Jesus changes most in a person's life. And so I want to look at a couple of New Testament passages here this morning and just encourage you to ask four questions this morning. Do you love money or do you love God? Ask these four questions to yourself. The first one is, are you enjoying life? Satisfaction and enjoyment in life is a very spiritual issue, and it flows from a love relationship with God. Jesus said that he came to give us life and life more abundantly, and the only way to find abundant life is to be totally in love with God. So are you enjoying life? If you're enjoying life, it's... it's 
very likely that you're loving God. Second question is this, are you anxious? Are you anxious? Now, this is a big topic. This, we could do a whole message on this, and so I'm not going to go in, in terrible depth, but this is something that Jesus identified in Matthew 6, 24 to 25. He really tied anxiety with a love of money. Notice this in Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, and that word therefore is key. He's tying these two things together. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You see, people who love money tend to be anxious about money. But if you love God, you don't have to worry about it because he has your back, right? Jesus goes on to say, your father knows what you need. He's promised to provide it for you. And as you learn to love God and as you learn to live in a relationship, a trusting relationship with you, God, you know you can count on him to provide for you. You don't have to worry. And so that's the second question. Are you anxious? Particularly anxious about just stuff. I mean, physical stuff. <laughs> the third question is, are you content with what you have? Are you content with what you have. Now, this is a big thing, right? It's really hard to find people who are content. It's really hard to be content. This actually is um, something that takes a great deal of spiritual power. Notice this in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, Paul talks about this. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Wow. Could you be content with just food and clothing? Paul says that's where we can be. That, that's a place we can get to. I mean, Jesus lived that kind of life. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's what Ecclesiastes has been teaching us this morning, right? I think that's what Paul has in mind when he's writing this. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul talks again about this idea of contentment in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Notice what he says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The most misquoted verse ever, right? <laughs> right? It's not about making the shot in overtime, right? It's, it's about living contently. This is what the power of Christ accomplishes in us. Whether we have prosperity or whether we're in poverty, right? To have contentment, that's the power of Christ in us. So are you content? And the fourth thing is, are you humble and generous? This also is huge. I mean, the, the, prof, the Old Testament prophets, they talked about this again and again and again. Humility and generosity, again, are the marks of those who love God. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, instruct those who are rich in this present world. And again, friends, that's pretty much most of us probably here today. I don't know if you know this, but if you make more than $50,000, you are part of the top richest 1% of people in the world. If you take all the people in the world, right? It's not true for Americans, 
That's just kind of a medium income. But when you compare it to all the people in the world, $50,000, you're top 1%. And so these words are true. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So those are just four questions to help us this morning. Think about where we're at, and I encourage you to just just think about that this week. These are all gospel issues. We live in a world where no matter how hard most of us try, we can't get no satisfaction. And the problem is we're looking in the wrong places. And efforts to fulfill our own desires are doomed to fail from the start. Jesus came to save us from this, right? He came to show us the way to satisfaction, to bring us back to God. He forgives us for the idolatry of loving money and loving ourselves. He gives us a new heart with new desires. He teaches us to love God. And he changes, us, he changes our song from I can't get no satisfaction to all I have is Christ, which is what we want to sing right now. Let me close in prayer as Matthew comes up and he's going to lead us. Father, this is something that we all are familiar with. We all know. We all are tempted, Lord, to look to money to try to to find satisfaction. Lord, we pray that you would free us from that, free us from that deception, sanctify us in the truth, and Lord, help us to know you, help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This we pray in Jesus' name.